Good morning. Good morning. Good to have you here this morning. Good to have you joining us at home. Those of you who are doing the live streaming want to get our service underway. So those in the foyer that are still uh, doing some visiting, why don't you come on into the auditorium and get started. We're going to have all the kids in here to get started, and then we'll dismiss. There will be a ministry for those who are sixth grade and below, and I dismiss the youngsters. They can all go out the back door, and then they'll be divided down into their various classes. Um, just a couple announcements, and then some give you some prayer requests. So if you want to pull out a pen or a pencil, I'll give you some updated things on some items to be praying for. But just to remind you, what we're doing today is uh, we're resuming 6.30 evening service, and that will be a time where the kids will have uh, that whole hour. They'll have a time for their type of activities and ministries. The teens, they'll have a time that's separate. When they come in, they'll just head straight to teen time. We'll do a Bible study in here as we work through the Foundation's booklets. If you're sitting at home and going to watch it that way, grab one of the Foundation booklets or see the notes that we put out with the email about those things. Also at 6.30, we're resuming the Addiction Center Outreach. That'll be taking place. And uh, then on Tuesday night, we're following that up with a uh, Addicted to Christ seminar workshop. It's the only other ministry we're running here on site. And the reason we're doing that is because if you've been following the news this week, they've been giving a lot of information about a number of people who have been afflicted and affected by the isolation of the COVID. Depression is at all-time highs, and especially for people who are struggling with any type of addiction. We're going to do some of those ministries such as that addiction, Addicted to Christ on Tuesday evening. So if you're interested in that, you can see Pastor Kim about that. He'll give you some information. Um, as far as other things that are happening, next Sunday we have a missionary coming in, and what's going to happen is he's going to speak at 8.30, 10.30, do the duplicate service, and then he'll speak in the evening at 6.30. We think we're going to be able to live stream the 6.30. We'll do the morning, but we're questioning on the evening because he'll get more in-depth about his ministry, and uh, some of that because he's working in the Far East and some areas that are not, they're, let me rephrase, they're, they're anti-Christian. He, we may have to limit what we put on live streaming. The easiest way is if you're here in, on site next Sunday evening and plan on that, then you'll make sure you're going to be able to hear that report. Plus, we have some who are getting baptized, so that would be great if you were able to be here. If not, we'll try to live stream what we can. We may have to be uh, abbreviating that. And again, the live stream is working that. We've even hastened up the time that already early Sunday morning, about 7 o'clock, I understand, they have the children's ministries up online as well as the Wilderness Wandering series. So we're trying to expedite things a little bit better for those of you who cannot be here because of the COVID concerns and health issues that you are able to access those things even earlier than 9 o'clock. Uh, you can do that early that morning or some of those things we have up throughout the week, a variety of Bible Institute, things like that, that you can see through the week. Um, other things that are happening, let me give you with prayer requests, pray for Barb Newton. Uh, Barb's condition is in that phase where she's entering into where they're exhausting pretty much everything they can do as far as the treatments. So pray for her as she's in those final laps of her race and uh, pray especially for the family. Uh, Barb is in the hospital and is supposed to be coming out tomorrow uh, and uh, then going through a series of more uh, treatments, antibiotics, things like that because of the infection that had developed. But just pray for her. They had moved last weekend towards the Allentown area. Next week, Pastor Allen is candidating at that church between here and the Reading area. So pray for a lot of those things that are going on in their family. If you would also be remembered to pray for Weaver family, uh, we had mentioned last week that Lisa's father passed away this afternoon as the service. So pray for that, that the Lord would use it. And we 
been praying for other individuals. Put down there as well, Dan Patrick's getting married. Pray for his wedding next week, but also, more importantly, for his marriage. And then if you would pray as well for Craig Griffith. Craig is the pastor over at Open Door Baptist, and we understand from posts that he's suffering a very serious illness. And so if you mark that down and pray for him, I know that they would appreciate that, and we definitely, definitely want to be praying for their church and their ministry in light of all these things. There are other prayer requests that I'll lead in prayer when we get to that spot. But what I'd like to do is get our service underway, read some scripture out loud together, and then after we read that scripture, we'll pray and we'll do some singing and then we'll get into our Bible study. Let's read out loud Psalm 71, verses 14 through 17. Feel free to read out loud with me as we go through the text. As for me, I will always have hope. I will praise you more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous deeds, of your saving acts all day long. I will come and proclaim your mighty acts, Sovereign Lord. I will proclaim your righteous deeds, yours alone. Since my youth, God, you have taught me, and to this day I declare your marvelous deeds. Father, we thank you that we can come and declare praise through song and through your word. I thank you for your grace. Thank you for the work that you have done in our hearts in saving us, helping us to mature, helping us to be able to understand the word more and more. Thank you for giving us the freedom that we can come and we can get together. Thank you for the abilities that we have to be able to have Bibles in our laps, on our phones to be able to uh, consult your word regularly. Thank you for the skill sets that you've given us through the education that was provided, that we can read your word, that we can uh, do those things that are that so often we take for granted. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the kids in this church. Thank you for their spirit, for their enthusiasm. We pray that you would give them a, a great time and when they do their junior churches, but also help them in their schools, the teens as well as they go day by day or do the online or intersperse it. I pray that they would have an uninterrupted education that would be helpful to them so that if you tarry, they are really, really prepared to face the future and to be able to do service for themselves, their family, and especially for you. We pray for some with special needs. We ask that you would help the Newtons during this time with Barb's illness as it's gone so many months and for so many years beyond expectation. I pray that you would help them in these final laps. I pray as well that you'd help the Weavers, as we mentioned, as they are doing that funeral service for her father this day. We pray that you would help the Mans as she She's going through a cancer battle. We pray that you would also bless the Griffith family as uh, pastor has serious illness, and I pray that you would just give strength and stamina to go through this ordeal. We pray, too, that you would help Dan with his upcoming wedding, that all would go well, but especially that you would bless his home that he is starting, and that you would guide and direct, just like you please, guide and direct a lot of the young parents here and their families, and bless them. Give them wisdom to be able to raise the kids for your glory. We pray for our country. I pray that the chaos would simmer down. I pray for civil leaders to be strong leaders, to take a stand where it's needed to give direction, and we pray for the upcoming elections. We would pray that we as voters would do our part and we would vote wisely in light of the, the principles that are at stake. Father, I pray that you would bless with the medical field, keep the people who are on the front line safe, but especially give wisdom that they'd find a vaccine 
that would be able to treat this disease and that we'd be able to see our society get back to somewhat of a normal pattern that we have been used to for so long. Father, thank you for this opportunity to be able to sing. I pray you help us with our voices to give you glory, to give you honor, and to magnify Jesus Christ and help him to be preeminent in our minds. Use the music that we sing to help us to focus on him, we pray in your name. Amen. Let's sing a hymn. Joyful, joyful, we adore thee. A couple stanzas that you're familiar with. Joyful, joyful, we adore thee, God of glory, Lord of love. Hearts unfold like flower before thee, opening for the sun above. The clouds of sin and sadness drive the dark of doubt away. Giver of immortal gladness, fill us with the light of day. All thy works with joy surround thee, earth and heaven reflect thy rays. Stars and angels sing around thee, center of unbroken praise, field and forest. Flowery meadow, flashing sea, chanting bird and flowing fountain, call us to rejoice in thee. There's another song that's talking about the Lord being great, being mighty. Kid's song, but let's do a little bit of kid actions. Let's sing out loud together about how great our God is. My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do for you. My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. The mountains are His, the valleys are His, the stars are His handiwork too. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do for you. Another song, Jesus Loves Even Me, thinking about the kids' theme that they sing, but for us as well. I am so glad that our Father in heaven tells of his love in the book he has given. Wonderful things in the Bible I see. This is the dearest that Jesus loves me. I am so glad that Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. I am so glad that Jesus loves me. Jesus loves even me. Though I forget him and wander away, ever I stray, back to his dear loving arms would I flee. When I remember that Jesus loves me, I am so glad that Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me, Jesus loves me, I am so glad that Jesus loves me, Jesus loves even me. And since the Lord loves us, we should obey him, do what he wants, day by day, all through the days. 
obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. Doing exactly what the Lord commands, doing it happily. Action is the key, do it immediately. Joy you will receive. Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. O-B-E-D-I-E-N-C-E. Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. We want to live pure. We want to live want to do our best, sweetly submitting to authority, leaving to God the rest, like keeping your attitude right, the narrow way, for if we believe the word we receive, we always will obey, obey. I-E-N-C-E Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. Before we get into the Word, let's do a song that's a prayer asking the Lord to direct us, to guide us. Be thou my vision. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart not be all else to me save that thou art thou my best thought by day or by night waking or sleeping thy presence my life be thou my wisdom and thou my true word I ever with thee and thou with me Lord thou my great father I thy true son thou in me dwelling and I with thee one before we do that final verse let's have the kids be dismissed those 6th grade all the way down to whatever age headed out the back door as we sing that final stanza before we do our Bible study join with me in this song of prayer to the Lord I King of Heaven my victory won may I reach heaven's joys oh bright heaven sun heart of my own heart whatever befall still be my vision oh ruler of all thank you
Thank you. Thank you. Let's take our Bibles and let's go into a passage now that you've sung so beautifully. Let's look into the Word of God and see what it has for us. We're in Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 for our Bible study that we're doing on a regular weekly basis. I think most of you are very familiar with the story. That fable that Hans Christian Andersen put together about the emperor's new clothes. Remember how that went? That there was this vain emperor so focused on clothing. And two hucksters come in and they present to the king that they have a new fabric. And only those who are competent, only those who are wise can see this fabric. And the king is all excited about it. He even sends his ministers to check out how they're doing with his new wardrobe. Well, the minister doesn't want to appear incompetent or not wise. So he goes right along with those hucksters who are actually working with nothing, but they've got everybody believing that if they can't see it, they're incompetent, they're unwise. And so as the story unfolds, remember they come and the emperor is going to do his parade of his news clothes, and they're dressing, those hucksters are dressing him, but nobody dares say they can't see it. Even the king, he doesn't want to appear unwise, he doesn't want to appear incompetent, so everybody is, oh, it's beautiful, it's so nice. The pages are picking up this air light airless gown and robe to follow along and there's nothing there but nobody wants to admit it the king goes out in the nude through the streets and finally after the crowds are not wanting to say that they can't see it because they'll be incompetent or unwise finally some child speaks up and out of the mouth of babes the reality is the king is naked walking through the streets you look at the story and say hey there's a lot of morals a lot of lessons that come don't be duped by swindlers <laughs> that's one or we could say hey don't let your pride keep you from acknowledging truth. That's one. Or we could say, put on what is real, okay? Make sure you do the real thing and don't, don't pre, be in a make-believe world. Do you know in Colossians 3, that has a lot of application in the same way? A lot of the parallels are there. As he's writing this text, he is write, warning these people about some of the false teachers that have been there who have been duping them and telling them things for a long time. And some of the people don't want to acknowledge that, wait a minute, wait a minute, that might not be right. And so they're following behind. So what he does is he talks about the preeminence of Christ. Now, Christ is all in all. And in chapter 3, he gets into putting on what is real. Dressing in the attire that you're supposed to be dressing in. And so that's where we pick up in chapter 3, verse 12, where he makes the comment at the very beginning of the verse, put on, therefore, as the elect of God. He is talking about putting on the garments that we're supposed to do. Now, it makes perfect sense because last week we looked at the previous verses that said, put off. You know, take off those clothing of sensual activity and conduct and thoughts. Take off those social sins that offend other people. And now he continues in the text and saying, now that you've taken off that bad stuff, put on what is right. Now, let me make a couple observations before we dissect it. When he says that we're supposed to put on something, it's very clear that the Bible, though it's accused of this all the time, the Bible is not a book of thou shalt nots and don'ts. The Bible is much more than that. It has a tremendous amount of benefit of telling us what to do, how we should act. It is a book that doesn't give just limits. It tells us how to live successfully for the glory of God. And especially at this text, we're talking about a principle that is so important in our Christian lives. It's a principle that we would call the principle of replacement. Whenever you take and get something out of your life, you better replace it or you're going to drift right back into the old stuff. It's like a kid who is at the beach and they're digging in the sand. And usually if you don't put something in its place, the sand's going to just come back. And especially when the waves come in, when the tide comes up, 
that hole is going to be filled in with the same old stuff. You and I have to put on or put off the bad, put on the new, or we're going to go back to that same old bad behaviors. And so when we get to this point and look at this verse, let's, let's just look at the word put on. The, the idea there is that we're supposed to have put off social vices, social sensual sins, but we're supposed to put on social virtues. And he's going to give us a list in verses 12, 13, 14, 15, all the way through. It is a command. Put on is not a suggestion. It is, I command you who are believers that you put on, and then he gives us a list. And he doesn't give us a choice of picking and choosing. This isn't a smorgasbord, like a shady maple that you can pick this, pick that. Put on includes everything that's in that list that we'll see in a moment. In that list that he talks about, it is how we relate especially to one another, each other. The reason I say that is three times in this passage, it says one another, one another, one another. It says that this is to be done because it is the bond or the glue of perfectness or perfect unity between one another. In verse 15, it even says that we are called into one body. So in this passage, he's talking to believers who are in a church setting and how they're supposed to relate one to another. Let's take it a step further. In when you look at that verb that says, this is, I'm commanding you to put on, he is calling for great change. He is immediately saying, you've got to do something different. Already we saw the word literally means begin to put off, these are believers, who have been hanging on to the old stuff, begin to put off and then stop lying and to begin to put on. You've got to change. And this change is your responsibility. You choose. You decide whether you are going to continue in the old social vices or going to pick up the new social virtues. And so he's challenging us. And there's a sense of urgency. Do it now. Now, sometimes we would say, well, I'll wait until I'm a senior in high school. I'll wait until I go to college. I'll wait until I get married. I'll wait until I have kids. I'll wait until I I get settled and I'm secure in my job. I'll wait until we have enough money we don't have to work anymore. I'll wait until I retire. No, no, no. The idea in this text is to you and I who are believers that even though we're saved, we have some responsibility to get some things out of our life and we're supposed to do it today. Not Monday, but start on it today. Not, that, not with a new year or once we get out of COVID. No, we're supposed to do it now. And so you're looking a little bit deeper. That our whole idea is you've got to make some personal effort. You have got to do something. You have got to respond to what I'm going to share with you throughout this text. You're going to walk out and you're either going to do it or you're going to choose not to do it. But it's going to require effort on your part. Every one of you. How do I know that? The word is to, to each and every one of us. It's a plural verb. All of you put off, which means none of us are perfect yet. All of you do this, and it's a middle verb that means you have to do this yourself. Somebody can't do it for you. You have got to do it. You have got to see and produce and to, with the help of the Spirit of God, make some changes in your life that will be reflected in how you treat one another at home, here, how in those relationships. It also tells me that these virtues are not automatic just because I'm saved. Just because I accepted Christ as my Savior doesn't mean I have great patience. Doesn't mean that I have love towards others. Doesn't mean that I'm forgiving. I'm supposed to be, but it's not automatic. 
It requires that we work on it and it takes effort. Repeated effort. The verb has the idea of do this over and over and over again. That means every single day you and I are to evaluate how am I doing in how I treat my spouse? How am I doing how I treat my siblings? How am I reacting to others at school? How am I reacting to the others in the church body? How am I doing it? And we're not supposed to sit back and say, well, I'm just that way. They have to put up with me. Uh Uh-uh. This passage is saying you've got to change. You can't excuse temper. You can't excuse impatience. You can't excuse the idea that you may blow up at the kids. You've got to make some changes to become more Christ-like, and you can. That's what this is all about. If it's a command that you can put off and put on, he's telling us we can change. Now, when you go through the text... What he does is he's starting and he's, he's going to be saying, okay, with these, oh, I, I know what I wanted to mention here. That's very important. These are all social virtues. The social virtues are assuming we're interacting. We are in a tough spot right now. We have pulled back from a lot of our worship times and a lot of our ministries. A lot of other ministries have done the same for the safety, the protection of the flock. There are some who have compromised health, who you're watching this, you're viewing this, and that makes perfect sense under the circumstances. But we are in a dangerous spot that we can get used to this. We can get used to isolating. We can get used to not being in fellowship with one another. And this text, when he says you need to put this on, is assuming we are going to, whenever possible, when it is, when it is within our, our frame of mind, we are not going to continue to isolate ourselves indefinitely. That we need the church body. We need to be interacting with one another. So all of that is important. Now we look at it and say, okay, put on, and we're going to dissect the verse, but we can't go any further than therefore. Put on therefore, verse 12, it's the third word in my sense, in my, my Bible. I don't know where it's at in yours, but the therefore means we have to look and say what it's there for. The therefore implies what I have said impacts your putting on. So before we go any further into the put on text, we got to back up a little bit. We got to back up to what did he say already in the previous verse or two? Well, last week we did up to one of the verses. We went up to about verse 9, and we did lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of God that created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all in all. Put on, therefore. Okay, what has he just said that impacts putting on proper conduct one towards another? Looking at the end of verse 9. He makes the comment, seeing you have once for all put off the old man and his deeds, once for all put on the new man. You know what he's referring there. He's talking about how God has changed you. God has converted you. There was a time in your life that you said, I am repenting of what I have done. I am no longer going to live that way. I'm going to become a follower of Jesus Christ. I want to have new life. I want to put on a new man. I want to be born again into the family of God. And so that moment of conversion took place sometime, is what he's saying to the readers. Sometime in your life, you came, repented of sin, asked Christ to be your Savior. And he's writing to a people who have done that. My question is, have you done that? 
Have you already come to a point in your life at some time where you said, I am tired of where I've, what I've been doing. I no longer want to continue in that type of thought, lifestyle, uh, captivity to those things. I, I want to have a new life in Christ. I want to have hope of making sure I'm going to heaven. Have that knowledge. I want to have a peace that passes all understanding. I want to know that I'm accepted by God Almighty. You need a born-again experience. You need to call upon Christ to be your Savior, to repent of your sins, put off the old man, put on the new. And if you notice in this text, if it happens once in your life, once saved, always saved. That it's a one-time act. Has that happened? Have you done that? And he's saying to these people, because you are believers, because God has changed you, God has converted you, therefore you should be acting in a proper relationship one with another. But he gives another reason in this text. Go a little bit further in it. He says that in the past, you know, you put on the new man and he goes further, put on the new man, which is now, right now being renewed in knowledge. He's talking about what happens after we're born again. He's talking about when we get saved, we're birthed. But now we grow in our Christian life. Sanctification is the theological term. That we start following the Lord, serving the Lord, and we're putting off and putting on, and we're growing, and we're becoming more like Christ. That being conformed to him. That's the idea of being renewed. The idea of renewed is something that's constantly happening in a believer's life. The word renewed means not to, not to in a time frame, but in a quality frame. You are improving. You are growing. You are maturing. You are getting better, becoming more like Christ. And it's this ongoing work of God in your heart that's conforming you to become more like Christ. You get convicted because you weren't Christ-like, and therefore you say, okay, I'm going to change that. I'm going to work on that. By the help of the Spirit of God, I'm going to do better. And it's something that is happening to you. You're putting your part in, but God is working to renew you. God is changing you. It's the idea that God is growing you. He is making this renewal happening, and it only happens by you having a deeper knowledge of God. Knowledge was a key word in this whole book. Remember the Gnostics? No, 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 God. Well, here he's using that deep, intense idea, this verb here, the word here, to get to really know God. And how do you do that? Well, in order to be sanctified, you've got to feed on the Word of God to get to know Him better. You've got to be praying to Him. You've got to be feeding your spirit so that God can be changing you. As you put your effort into it, God puts His effort into it, and you grow and you grow and you become better in Christ so that more and more you look like Jesus Christ. That is exactly what Romans talks about and says that God in eternity past determined this. He predetermined that those of you who are born again, those of us who have become his child, that he has determined we will be conformed to the image of his son. In other words, God said in eternity past, this is what's going to happen. When Wayne gets saved at age 16, from that moment on, I'm going to start changing him. I'm going to start conforming him. And I'm going to be working in his heart. As he does his part, I'll do my part and we'll make him more Christ-like. And Wayne at times you know, puts heels in the ground. I don't follow through like I should. But God continually works. He convicts. He, he starts challenging. He brings you into my life. And you become that part of that help that God provides in helping me to grow. And eventually I will be conformed to the image of Christ. Not completely in this life for sure when I get raptured. 
Some of you are conforming much quicker than some of us who are, who are slow because you're in the Word, you're praying more, you're, you're not struggling with some of the past. And the fact is, this is an ongoing process. And because this is an ongoing process and God is working in our hearts, we're supposed to be relating to one another because all of us are in the same problem together. All of us are struggling together. He's given one reason. God has changed you, converted you, made you one of his children. God is, he's conforming you. Then he gives us a third reason why we should put on. Oh, I want to tell you this story about conforming. There's um, the film. Any of you remember seeing this? Okay. For some reason, Hollywood will say it's no longer culturally acceptable. But uh, right now it still is. Ben-Hur is talking about that story of a, a Jew who ends up being accused falsely and ends up in prison, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. When they were doing the movie in 59, they uh, had uh, Charlton Heston, he had to learn how to do a chariot. And as he took five weeks to be able to learn how to control a chariot, he said it was one of the hardest things he ever did. But at the end of the five weeks, he came to the... To the um, director of the film, William Wyler at the time, and he said to the director, okay, I think I can do this, and I can stay in the chariot, and I can make the horses go. And so Wyler was excited about it, but he said, I, I certainly can't win a race. I'm not that good that I can win a race. The director looked at him and said, you don't have to. You just keep those horses going. I will make sure you win the race. That's what God is doing in our hearts. As we're going through the race of life, God says, I will make sure you win, you become conformed to Christ. It's a reality, but it's a process that we're in right now. And it's a reason why we should be socially treating one another in a gracious way. There's a third reason why. Look at verse 11. In verse 11, he says that there is no difference, and he lists off a whole bunch of things. And he's talking about people who have now become companions, colleagues, who are now brothers and sisters, that they should get along. And he lists them out. He says, whether or not you're Jew or Gentile, okay, whether you're Greek or Jew, your race makes no difference. You have a bond in Jesus Christ. Whether or not your religious background was Jewish or non-Jewish, circumcision or uncircumcision, no matter what your church background, you're brothers and sisters in Christ. No matter what your cultural background, barbar or barbarians, barbar were people who weren't as educated as the typical people of, of Jewish and Hellenistic society. Hellenistic is that Greek world. How they promoted all of a sudden when the Greeks and the Romans came in. They're promoting education. They're promoting culture. And they're, they're improving just you know, the, um, the normal everyday life of individuals. And the barbars were the people who were not keeping up. They weren't being educated. They weren't being trained. They weren't learning the Greek language. They weren't real cultured. They were the hillbillies of their day. The worst of the hillbillies of their day would be the Scythians. These were people who weren't just behind, but they were belligerent. These were the individuals, the Scythians as a group, came in and had invaded before the Romans. And they were considered the coarsest of people, the crudest, the, the uneducated, the lowest of terms. So in a lot of different writings at that day, if they called you a Scythian, that meant you were a real backwards individual. And you were just coarse and rough. And it was, the, it was one of the most derogatory terms you could give to somebody. He acts like a Scythian. Well, now he's saying there's no difference. If you're cultured or you're, if you're like a Scythian, if you're in Christ, you are, you are brothers and sisters. And it doesn't make any difference what's your background. If your bond 
You're still a slave or you're a free man. We're supposed to treat each other the same. We're supposed to have a graciousness one to another, no matter what our background. No matter, we're not supposed to be coming in and saying, well, wait a minute, they don't dress as nice of clothes as I do. They don't have as nice of a hairdo as I do. Now, yeah, you're going to laugh, okay, just because. They don't, they don't speak. Yeah, he says his O's funny because he's from Minnesota. Okay, that's all dropped. That's not supposed to be there anymore. We're supposed to be treating one another, and I'm not talking about just the, the, the joking jabs. We're not supposed to be treating each other poorly. And that's what he says we're supposed to put on, is that the idea of brothers and sisters in Christ. We're supposed to put on this bond that we have with one another. And then he gives a fourth reason why. And I think he adds it after he says, put on, therefore, he calls us three names. Put on, therefore, those of you who are elect. Those of you who have been chosen. God chose Israel to be the outstanding nation. God chose us to be outstanding in this world. We're not supposed to be like the world. We're to be light. We're to be salt. We're to be different. God chose us to that. God has determined that. He's predetermined that we who are chosen become different and conform to Jesus Christ. We're the elect. We're the chosen by God. We've been given a privileged spot that we're to love not the world, neither be in the world. We're supposed to be different. We are holy. Holy means to be set apart. It is, it's that word hagias. Sometimes holy is saint in the Bible. Sometimes it's sanctified in the Bible. It's that idea that whatever you take, you, whatever item or people or person, this person is set apart. God used this when he was talking about the tabernacle in the Old Testament. And the, the, uh, the uh, temple in the New Testament. He said that the furniture, the tools that were going to be there were to be set apart. They were holy. That means the shovel that was used to get some of the embers and stuff off of the altar of incense. That was not supposed to be the same shovel you as a priest would say hey, to your kid. Hey, go out and dig in the sand for a while. It was dedicated. It was supposed to be just for this. The, the furniture, the chairs, just for this. It was dedicated. It was special. Well, you are to be dedicated. You're to be committed. You're, you're holy. You're chosen. And you're to be set apart. And, and we, do that, we do that even, if I can give the silly illustration, when we come to a marriage ceremony. In a marriage ceremony, as what's going to take place this coming week, you know, Pastor, I will do the ceremony. He'll say to Dan, do you take, and he's going to say, you know, do you take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife and whatever words they're going to use, and that you will keep yourself only for her, and you will cherish her until death do you part. Is she, in other words, is she holy? Have you dedicated yourself to her and her and her alone? Are you going to make sure you're holy towards her? So he asked that question, and Dan goes, duh, maybe? Well, if your spouse did that at the ceremony, you should clop him one, right? There's got to be a definitive say, I am dedicating to you. Well, that's what this text is about. He's saying, you dedicated to Christ, and God dedicated to you. You're holy. Then he uses another term. He says, you're beloved. You have been and you continue to be beloved by God. He's reminding us of our relationship as family members. God loves us all the same. God cares for us as his children. And as a parent, one of the things I want to have, have happen is as my children get older, I want them to get along. I don't want strife and conflict in my household because they're all in our family. I want them to act like they're beloved 
by their parent. And they treat one another. So all of this is in the relationship of how you relate to brothers and sisters in Christ. He's given us all those reasons and saying this is the way we're supposed to be living because God has done a work in our hearts. He's changed us from those old ways because God is growing us because we are selected to a special position because God loves us all. You and I are to live in such a way that we are treating each other in a very, very special way, in a very proper way. The bottom line is this. We are really blessed by God. If we just stopped right here, we'd have to say, oh God, thank you. Thank you for changing me. Thank you for converting me. Thank you for giving me companions. Thank you for choosing me. And so all of it goes together. And then with that in mind, we're going to jump into the virtues. We're going to go through the list real quickly. But I want you to think and keep in mind, these virtues are for every day. They're not for Sunday only. They are for every day. They are to be in your home. They are to be in this home. They are to be shown every day. And I want you to understand, every one of the virtues listed are personified by Jesus Christ. Every single one, you look at them and go, that was Jesus. That's the way Jesus acted. In other words, we're to dress like Christ. We're to look like Christ. If I were, if I were to sum up this message, this is it. This is what this is all about. And I want you to remember this this week. Because you are blessed by Christ. That's all the things we've just mentioned. Because you are blessed. Then you need to dress like Christ. Because you've been blessed by Christ. Get dressed to look like Christ. Now how do you do that? That leads us into the what. That leads us into the requirements. And the requirements are very simple in the text. He says here's what you need to do. You need to have bowels of mercy. Now, this is kind of odd. This is strange. Because in the Old Testament, they said, you know, this was the seat of emotion. In other words, I would look at Deb and say, I love you with all my intestinal tract. (laughs) And she would go, oh, pathetic. But that's the way they would say it in that day and age. And we understand why. Because when we get emotionally upset, our stomachs get bothered. And so they in that world, they would talk about, oh, I take you with all my bowels. Yeah, and that would be a deep expression of compassion. Well, he says, okay, here I want you to be compassionate. From the very depth, the very core of your being, show compassion. Show a deep concern for others. And that whole idea is, again, this isn't something that we naturally have. We've got to work on this. We have to work on being compassionate. We need to dress like Jesus Christ. Okay, if that's the case, then let's take a moment. What did Jesus do? When he was moved with compassion. Four different verses up here. Four different verses that say. And I did it from one, one uh, book of the Gospels only. So you would see that it's not a repetition of the same time. But on at least four different occasions. It stated Jesus was moved with compassion. What did he do? What does moved with compassion look like? Well because he saw other people's needs. Here's what he did. He started sharing the word of God. Because he was moved with compassion. He helped them. Physically, he could heal, so he did that part. What he did is he fed 5,000. He was moved with compassion. He fed another 4,000. Because he was moved with compassion, when the two blind men came, and they were saying, please, son of Barjona, uh, son of Jesus, please help us, help us, help us. Son of David, give us a healing. He let his schedule be interrupted. He stopped what he was doing, and he ministered. 
He was an individual that taught them God's word, gave them hope because they were a sheep without a shepherd. They were individuals that he saw at one time and he's moved with compassion and he said, pray ye the Lord of the harvest that there would be other laborers sent. The needs were so great that he prayed that others would get involved ministering. Have you prayed that way lately? Have you been moved with compassion that you let your schedule be interrupted? Have you been moved with compassion that you did something physically to help somebody else out? Dress like Christ. You've been blessed by him. Dress like him. Then he says, put on kindness. Now the word that we get here from kindness is the word basically grace. Gentleness. It, it, it has more of what we understand as mercy. Kindness is what we would say mercy to other people. Withholding from them what, what they could do, what we could do. And give them a graciousness. But that's hard for us. Because typically we are people more inclined for justice to people. They didn't do what they said. They stood me up for that appointment. I'll stand them up. They, they cut me off on the road. I'm going to cut them off. It, if I can illustrate this way. Okay, I'm driving down the road. This would never happen to me. I'm driving down the road, and the police officer pulls me over. I don't work this way. I am not about justice. Officer, put the cuffs on. You know, officer, give me the biggest ticket you can. You know, I want to surprise my wife. Yeah. Officer, yeah, you're right. I rolled through that stop sign. Take me to jail. No, in that moment, what do I want? I want mercy. I want mercy. You know, just warn me and let me go. I'm, I'm all about mercy when I'm stopped. But if I'm driving down the road and somebody cuts me off or speeds by, my thought is, where's the cop when you want him? I want justice for them. And we're, we, we operate that way. And he says, this is something you need to begin to do. Like David did to Mephibosheth. Remember the whole story of David and Mephibosheth? King Saul was the first king. He had a son, Jonathan. David and Jonathan got to be best buds. And they were, they were really close. They even made a covenant between each other that said, no matter what happens, I'll take care of your family, you take care of my family. Now understand back in those days, if there was a change in kings, what usually happened to their political opponents? They'd kill the opponent plus all the family. All the family. So here you have David making a commitment to, and, and in that time, you know, in that story, King Saul and David were political opponents. They, were, they, were, they had this problem. And so David is, years later, David now is the king. Jonathan is dead. Saul is dead. And David remembers the covenant he made. Is there somebody in Jonathan's household, Jonathan's kids, grandkids, anybody survived that I might show loving kindness? Is the word said that he wants to show to them. And so he asks out loud, anybody know? Anybody know? Somebody says, there's a son. His name is Mephibosheth. When the nurse was running out of the, the palace that was on fire, she dropped him. He was lame from birth. So he's, he doesn't live in luxury. In all these years. He's, he is your political rival. If somebody wants to do a revolt. They could put him on the throne. But David wants to show mercy. So he sends messengers. They bring Mephibosheth. And do you remember what Mephibosheth is thinking? He's thinking he's going to die. 
This is a political execution. And David, when he brings him, David shows mercy. Come, eat at my table. I will clothe you. I will care for you. I will take care of you. You can sit at the king's table. Mercy. Mercy. That's what we're supposed to be putting on. Then he says, humbleness of mind. Put on humbleness of mind. This is very simply lowly thinking about yourself before others and God. Thinking of yourself not too highly. Now, in the Bible days, the ancient Near East, that's A&E. In the ancient Near East, this was not a virtue. This was seen as, this was a real, real um, character defect. That if, you know, and so they would be very braggadocious. They'd be very, me first, me first. Aren't you glad we Americans have outgrown that? And he's saying, oh, wait a minute. This is the way Christ was. And he commands us in other passages, be the same way. Put others before yourself. And and that's not normal. I mean, seriously, do you remember kindergarten, first grade, second grade, when the teacher said, line up, what does everybody want to be? First in line. First in line. That's, That's the way we are. And this text says, you know, put on humbleness, but the parallel passage, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. And he goes on and saying, doing nothing from rivalry, conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than you. In other words, in conversations, it doesn't have to be about me and my experiences. And somebody get in conversation with somebody and they say, you know, when I had COVID, da, 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 da. And I want to say, but when I had COVID, it was, yeah. Don't do that. Don't do that. He says, look out for other people's interests. Me, when I have a schedule, you know, I want my schedule kept. If two blind men came up and said, help me, help me, help me. I'd say, you know, call my office secretary. I'll give you an appointment. And he says, no, 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 no. We're to be different. We're to be Christ-like. We're to pause and minister. We're to turn off the TV, turn off the computer. Stop what we're doing and look out for others. That's hard. But that's what the text is talking about. Do you remember ever seeing in history? I I know this is a test in modern world to go back into history that's not rewritten. But do you remember the two characters? Abraham Lincoln, Stephen Douglas. Okay. They were rivals throughout their adult careers. They were both from the Illinois area. They both ended up being elected to the Illinois House of Representatives. They were on opposite sides there. They both had relationships with Mary Todd because Lincoln had asked her to marry. She said yes, and the day of the wedding, he didn't show up. So Stephen Douglas shows up, and he starts courting her and proposes, and a year later, Lincoln shows up, and they get married. Then when they, they end up in, in, uh, in uh, uh, years later, they end up in opposition and they have the Douglas, Lincoln-Douglas debates over the spread of slavery and it became a pivotal part of, of American history where they went around and they had these debates against each other. And even in the 1860 presidential election, their opponents on the tickets, well, along with a few others, they ran against each other. They were political opponents. They were wifery opponents. Come the day of the election, the inauguration, Lincoln gets up to the dias, to the podium, and he's going to speak, and he takes off his hat. I mean, what do you do with a stovepipe hat? There's no good place to put it down. And they said historically there was this awkward moment that he had a cane and a hat to get rid of. Stephen Douglas jumped up, came up two rows, said, Mr. President, and took it and held his hat, held his cane. 
Instead of being modern day, modern day politicians would say, let them be embarrassed. But we're no better at times. We're supposed to put on a spirit of humility. We go out of our way to minister to others. Then meekness. Meekness has the idea of not being a fearful, skittish, you know, the, you know, all of a sudden dark comes and we hide in our house and we're under COVID fear. That's not meekness. That's not the word here. This word has the idea of not being harsh, but being courteous, even when you don't feel like it. You see, the word comes from the idea of, it has the idea of control. Uh, power under control, literally. They would call, I'm going to fool with the Greek word and make it semi-English, preas is the idea of something powerful under control. At times, they would call a refreshing wind a preotic wind. Can wind be powerful? Can it do destruction? Yes, yes. Knock down trees, take off roofs, things like that. But can wind under control be refreshing? Absolutely. A preotic wind would be something powerful under control. A preotic horse was a horse that was fast and powerful, but it was controlled by its master. So when he says, I want you to put on preos, I want you to have self-control. I want you to be an individual who wrath and anger doesn't take place, but rather, even when you're frustrated, that all of a sudden, you're under control. You know what not to say. You're able not to say it. You're able to control that temper when you're pushed to the limits. Then he adds long-suffering. Long-suffering is very similar. Long-suffering has this idea of putting wrath far away from you. It's the idea of being really patient, being really tolerant with other people who drive you nuts. And none of us know anybody like that. We all have our irregular person. We all have somebody that might push us to our limits. And he's saying, no, you need to put on long-suffering. Isn't this something, and, and um, this true confession. I think that when I was parenting, I needed more long-suffering than any other time in my life. Because, and your kids are so much better than mine. My kids could push us to the limits. They could just ask the same question over and over and over and over within one minute. We could hear, are we there yet? To the point, I want to throw them out. Long-suffering. Then he adds two others. If you look at your text, he adds then uh, forbearing one another and forgiving one another right after that. Both of those are participles. They don't mean much to you by saying it, but what they could be translated is put on long-suffering while forbearing, while forgiving. And so many scholars think that these next two phrases help explain long-suffering. Long-suffering in this sense means forbearing one another. That is that idea of some things that irritate you. Have you had any irritations lately? Has, and, and, and I don't, you know, has the government irritated you of late? Ha, has, has going into stores become more complicated of late? And he's saying, okay, tolerating situations without exploding, without, without you know, lashing out, holding back. Holding back what you want to do or say. Holding up what is right. That's the idea of forbearing one another. God did that to you and me. He withholds judgment. He keeps back judgment and gives us the grace and the mercies. Years ago, there used to be the situation that when you flew, um, you could, when smoking was, was somewhat acceptable, that you could fly in a plane and they would have smoking sections. 
not designated, but basically it would be like saying, um, do you mind if somebody smokes around you? And you'd say, it's okay. So right there, you become the smoking section. I was flying a one, one flight from an overseas missions trip, and the stewardess is asking because somebody behind wants to smoke. And they asked, do you mind if people smoke around you? I said, I'd prefer not. So she made the smoking section right behind me. She put the sign right on my seat. And anybody could stand right there or behind me where they were sitting. That was the smoking section. Which, by the way, everybody blew their smoke towards me. Because it was very obvious I'm the one that you know, minimized the section. And so there's this plane. The guy says, hey, stewardess. Is it okay for me to smoke my cigarette, uh, cigar? And she says, well, it's not up to me. I have to ask everybody. And she starts asking, is it okay? Is it okay? Is it okay? And everybody says, yeah, it's fine. It's fine. Except for the woman who happens to be sitting right next to him. The stewardess noticed she was getting redder and redder. And her eyes were starting to bug out. And finally, without the stewardess you know, getting to her yet, the woman says, I detest cigar smoking. I can't stand anybody who smokes a cigar. Everybody got very quiet. The man kind of shrinking in his seat. Everybody else is shrinking down. And the stewardess says, now what do I do with this? This awkward situation. So just a minute, sir. Maybe I have an idea. There was a blank seat up there. I'll go see if the people mind if you. So she went up, asked the people right around. They said, it's okay. She came back, sir, if you don't mind, you could move up there and you could smoke there. And then you won't bother this lady. And the man said, okay. So he gets up and he starts walking. As he's walking, that woman sitting there with the bugged out eyes, red face. She looks at the stewardess and she says, I can't stand it. I've been married to that man 30 years and I still can't stand his cigar smoking. I'm not advocating cigar smoking. But you got to be forbearing. You got to be forbearing with what happens when you chose that person. You got to be not only forbearing, but forgiving one another. Forgiving, we understand this one. I don't even have to take time to explain it, but he expands it. Forgive anyone who has an accusation against you. Anybody who has a conflict with you. A quarrel has the idea. Anybody who finds something against you. And if I look at this verse right, it kind of includes any and all situations. Well, I, I forgive everybody, but... I forgive everybody, but... There's no but in this verse. And he's saying, basically, we're to have an attitude of forgiveness towards those who have something against us. And then he, then he makes it more convicting. Even as Christ forgave you, do also. And it's like, ooh, there it goes. Poked right to the heart. That if Christ forgave me, I'm supposed to forgive others. Since he's my standard, he's my example. And remember, he's accused. He's attacked. They pound nails through his hands and feet. And what does he pray? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. I'm supposed to put that on? Because you've been so blessed by Christ, we are to dress like Christ. The answer is yes. But I'm like Peter. I'm like Peter who just says, wait a minute, wait a minute. How often do I have to forgive? Yeah, and Peter comes up to Jesus and says, you're talking about forgiveness. Do we, you know, what's the limit? Seven times? Now understand in historical context that normally 
the, the rabbis, the, the teachers of those days, the Pharisees, they taught you have to forgive how many times? Not seven. Three. One strike, two strikes, three strikes. So what is Peter doing in this passage? He's doubling it plus one. We would look at Peter and go, whoa, you're a forgiver. You really got this down pat, Peter. You, you got, and Jesus says, yeah, Peter, you think you're really good? You think you really got a handle on forgiveness? I, I want you to never stop. But you don't have the same relatives I have. <laughs> now what the passage says. You have to ask yourself the question. When did Christ, and we're assuming you've confessed. When does Christ say, I'm done with you. I'm, I'm not forgiving you anymore. He doesn't. As Christ forgives you, so do also. And so then he comes to the, the one he says, and last of all, or above all these things... Here's your, the, the other garment. To make your wardrobe complete, put on charity. Agapao, love. Uh, th- this he makes clear that it's, this is, this is it. This is the summary of it all. Which, by the way, doesn't it take you right back to another passage of Scripture? 1 Corinthians 13. Faith, hope, love. They all abide, but the greatest of these is love. Okay, same type of an idea. And this love is to be active. It's to be seen. It's not just to be, oh, I love them. I love you across the aisle. And then ignore them. It's to be displayed. It's to be shown. It's, it's that idea like this guy. He's working in his home, doing his, his work there at the desk. And, and the little girl comes running up and says, Daddy, yes, honey, I love you. Oh, honey, I love you too. He goes back to work. Little girl didn't go far. She came right back. Says, Daddy, I really love you. Honey, I really love you too. Goes back to work. Little girl pulls on his arm. Says, Daddy, I really, really, really love you. He says, okay, honey. I, I, yeah, I love you a lot. And with that, she jumped up on his lap, pushed his computer back, and grabbed him around the neck. She says, I love you so much, I just got to show it. I wish my grandkids had that. <laughs> a couple of weeks back, we celebrated her big 4-0 birthday. They come out to give a hand while Deb was sick and with COVID, and so they were here. And uh, so we thought, this is great. We're going to do a big 4-0. And so we got together with, with Manskers, the other grandparents, and we did this party, and they brought over a pinata and put a bat in the hand of a 4-year-old <laughs> in my house. And we had such a great time. Couldn't break the pinata, but all the candy inside got broke. I mean, it was just when it finally opened up, we had dust, sugar dust all over. And then the kids, then once it opened up, the four kids, they grabbed their bags, they filled their bags. And about 10 minutes after this is all done, they started something that they've never done before. They started trading. It's a new concept for them. They're going to trade candy. And so they're setting, and they talked about, we're setting up a trading post. And we're going to trade, and they did this for, oh, an hour, trading and swap, the same candy back and forth. But they were trading. 
The next morning I woke up and they were still there out there trading. Not all night, but I went out and they were doing it again. And I thought, I'm going to get in on this. The problem is I don't have any candy. So what I do have is pennies, dimes, quarters. And maybe I can convince them. So when I came with coins, they had no idea of how, you know, the coins, the significance of the different coins. They just saw money. And they were willing to trade. So I was going to call it penny candy, but is there such a thing anymore? Okay. But the smaller piece of candy, so I'm trading, you know, I'll give you, I'll give you this big coin, this silver coin that's called a nickel. It's bigger than the smaller one called a dime. I'll give you a nickel, you know, for a couple. And so we're doing all the trade. I'll give you one that's kind of a different color. It's a penny. Look how beautiful that is. You know, do you want, you want to have, you, you don't have that color. So we were doing this back and forth. And um, they were getting the best of me without, without any concern on my part. I was down to four quarters and no candy. And so then, so then it's going to be, I, I got, you have, for this big coin, all you have to give me is one piece of candy, a kiss, and a hug. I know, that's the only way I can do it, so it works. Okay, so give me a kiss and a hug, and this quarter, and your one piece of candy. Preston jumped up, ran, he says, I'll give it, yeah, you yeah, smooched all over, that's great, that's good. Okay, you get the quarter. Uh, Eden jumped up, mm, smooch hug. She got her big quarter. They were so excited. Kaylin jumps up, mm, kiss hug. The four-year-old is sitting there. And the other three look and they say to her, you get a quarter. That's a whole lot of money. You know, give me a piece of candy. Get a hug. It's not worth it. And she walked away. <laughs> I am still deeply depressed, <laughs> near suicidal. That is the way some believers treat other believers. They're not worth it. They're not worth me making a phone call. They're not me taking time to write a note. They're not worth us taking an evening to go and visit a shut-in. They're not worth it. It's funny when a kid does it, but I wonder how God views it from, his, from when he looks at us kids. And he says, put on love. Put on love. Because he wraps that section up, he says, because the love is the belt, the girdle that pulls it all together. See the phrase that it says? It is the bond, the glue of spiritual maturity. It is that which really brings you to the point that you are really advancing in your Christian life. That's exactly what he prays for in verse 28, that this would happen to the church. That you people would have this perfectness. And he pleads with them. He says, put these things on. Put them on in your life. There's a whole section, I'm going to keep this until next week. But basically, let's bring it down to here. How do you work at keeping your family where you're loving in your home. Does it look this way? Losing your temper, is that really put on Christ-likeness? When all of a sudden you're yelling in your home at siblings and kids, is that Christ-likeness? Is it Christ-likeness when you and your spouse continue an argument that could go on for days? Is it, is it Christ-likeness when you go to other people in your family and talk about another party? 
Is it Christ-likeness when you mock and ridicule your brothers and sisters and tear them down? Is it Christ-likeness when you're sassing your parents and arguing with them? Is it Christ-likeness when you as a parent say to your kid, you're so stupid, you embarrass me? Is it Christ-likeness when you don't talk to your spouse for hours on end and you give them a silent treatment? Is that Christ-likeness? Is it, is it good in the church when all of a sudden you come here, you look around, and you criticize and complain others when you're leaving? Is it Christ-likeness when you look and say, that person didn't do what I suggested, they're an idiot? Is it Christ-likeness when you insist on your own way or you'll go down the highway? Is it Christ-likeness when you'd come and sit back and expect everybody to come and notice you, but you take no effort to minister, to talk to, to reach out to anybody else? Is it Christ-likeness when you look and say, they don't dress as nice as I dress? I, I, I can't get this one out of my mind. I still remember ministering to a family that I led to Christ. They came they got away from the Lord. A few years later, we got in contact again. They came back to this church. We got them into a second Bible study. They were growing until. We're standing in the foyer, and a couple other teens in our church are standing there, a couple other girls, and they look at the girl who's about this far away, the teen in that home, and they say, oh, she doesn't know how to dress the way it's appropriate. She heard it. Her parents heard it. I heard it. They never came back. Is it Christ-likeness when you avoid others? Because they look different. They don't have the same type of job. They're kids. But then we flip it and say, okay, wouldn't this be more what he's asking you and me to do? Taking time to encourage some of the seniors, some of the widows, wouldn't it be wise to say, I will. I will make some contact with people. If you don't know who to contact, I have names. I'll give you a card with two names on them that you could phone call, you could write a note to be an encouragement to some of those folk who need encouragement. Wouldn't it be great if you as a family would take your directory from church and pray for two or three other families by name, periodically? Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if you as a family would say, hey, we know somebody who's a widow shut in. We want to do the COVID distancing. We could just stand at the porch and we could talk for five minutes just to be an encouragement because they can't come to church because of their situation, but we could go to them. Wouldn't it be wonderful that we would start a practice where you would talk to somebody different that you've never talked to before and get out of your comfort zone and take time on a Sunday to meet somebody new. Wouldn't it be wonderful to say, hey, I'll, I'll watch your kids so you can go out on a date. Because you're doing the homeschooling, you're doing all those things, you need a break today. And I'm not McDonald's, but I'll do the next best thing. What would it be like? If all of a sudden we said, because we can't, we, we just, we're at a spot where we aren't starting up all of our ministries. Several of you are expressing it, and I understand. Can we get, can we get something going in the midweek to just be refreshed? Why don't you invite some family to your house?
Get together. Do a Bible study with two or three families. Why why don't you do this? Why don't you start a prayer team? You can do it over the internet. You can do it by phone. You could get together to be an encouragement to others. Say, hey, would you be a prayer partner? Let's Let's form a threesome prayer group. And we'll pray once a week together. There's so many different vehicles that you can use on Skype and Zoom and Team and all these different things that you could connect. But you could be an encouragement to somebody. We want to start Sunday evenings again. What about being a blessing by going and helping with the kids' ministries so that when we're ready to start, we can. We can expand into doing some things in the midweek. At this point, we can't. We don't have workers. But you saying, I'm going to put on the spirit of Christ-likeness. I'm going to to live this. I'm not going to hang on to my candy and say, not worth it. The body of Christ is worth it. Becoming like Christ is, it's it's the best thing we can do. You know, you and me. It's one thing to just sit here and to learn these things. It's another one to say, I need to put on these clothes. I need to become more like Christ. Little girl in the back seat of the car, they're leaving church, and the little girl's real quiet. Mommy said, how did Sunday school go? Really fine, but I, 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 the, the teacher said something I don't understand. I don't know if it's true. Well, what was it? The, the teacher said that God is so big that he holds the world in his hands. Is God that big? Mom said, yeah, that's true. But the teacher also said that God, he lives within our bodies. Is that true? Yeah, that's true. And then she asked this question. If God is bigger than us and he lives in us, wouldn't he show through? Does he? Does he in your life? You've been so blessed by Christ. You're supposed to dress like him. Have you put Christ on last week? Will you put him on this week? Father, I pray, help me. Help my friends. Help us to live the word of God. Help us to follow through. Help us to become what you said here in this text. To making Christ preeminent, we need to dress like Christ. Help each and every one of us to don the garments of Christ this day. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.